0: join me. We're so excited y'all are uh, here this morning. Would y'all want to come down here real quick? I want to just talk to the kids real quick. I know Miles is here, the Wrens. The y'all want to come up? So we're excited. The, our family worship experience, we got the kids, Jaden. Y'all just sit, sit here. All right. Okay. Raise your hand if you're waiting for something. What are you waiting on? Go see, go, go see family, okay. Have you ever, raised your hand, have you ever had to wait on something that was really hard to wait, like you were just really excited, and mom and dad maybe said, we got to wait. Has that ever happened? Well, if you listen, we're going to talk about, from the Bible, we're going to talk about people that were waiting They were waiting for something to happen, and then we're going to talk about, as Christians, what the Bible says that we're waiting for still. So if you listen, we're going to talk about waiting. And then who has, what has your dad done to help you? Has your dad ever helped you do anything? Anything? Work? Work? Okay, good. Well, we're going to talk about, so you can think of, like, your dad, like, helping you. Probably your dad loves you so much, and, and then... We're going to talk, we're going to see what the Bible says about our Heavenly Father and how God helps us, okay? So we're excited you are here, but if you listen for those things, what are we waiting for? And then how does God, our Heavenly Father, how does he help us and love us? Sound good? Okay, all right. I'm fine, go back to mom and dad. All right, so we're excited for the kids to be with us this morning. We know it's an exciting day. Um, in anticipation of family gatherings and celebrating Christmas tomorrow. So we're thankful to be able to be together on Christmas Eve. So thinking about waiting, and we know that the people of God, as we track with what happened, what happened with the first appearing of Jesus, we know that the people of God, they were waiting. They were waiting for a long time. So if you think about what had happened in history with the, the people of Israel, with the Jewish people, and how they entered a period of they were being conquered. They were being conquered by different world powers. And then it shifted in with uh, the empire of Persia came in, conquered them, and allowed them to go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem around 586 B.C. And then just thinking about what's going on in history when we refer to definitely the people of God, and when we refer to historical events, the timing, what it is referred to as BC, all these years, it is referring to before Christ. Before Christ. This is a turning point in history. And then we have the years AD, and that is the Latin phrase anno domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So we are in the year of. 2023 to soon be over but this dating system it's not taught in the bible it's actually not implemented fully um, and accepted until several centuries after jesus's death but this dating system it actually when they went to uh put it in it is the dividing line the point in history that that divided history The event of Jesus' birth. So as scholars were calculating it, they understood that pinpointing the year of Jesus' birth, that there was a mistake made in the calendaring. So they actually say that Jesus was probably born somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C. and not the year 1 A.D. But that's not the crucial issue. The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, they're turning points in world history. And so for the people of God, again, the Babylonian victory uh, in 586 B.C. And then the Persians come in and they have uh, to return and, and rebuild the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And then they're experiencing direct control from different rulers. You have the, the Persians, you have the uh, Maccabean, the Jewish revolt come, come back. And then you have uh, the Greeks before that. The Greeks came in and ruled for a time and impacted culture greatly. And then under Roman rule, the Roman Empire is established. That's where we find uh, when Jesus was born, what was going on in the history of the world, the Roman Empire. And so the Hebrew people, the people of God, they are experiencing this dispersion scattered around uh, the known world. They're experiencing difficulties understanding who they are, whose they are. It's definitely a period of theological crisis, if you will. But these questions of, if you can imagine the people just understanding why had the Lord permitted them to be conquered? Maybe the questions of was he still good, loving, caring? Was he able to protect them? So these events and then the intertestamental period. When we go from the 400 years of silence from the last prophet, the last one speaking of what God was going to do, who God was going to send, how he was going to uh, be involved with his people. And then you had this intertestamental period, 400 years or so of silence, no prophets, nothing from God, nothing on the radar, nothing moving towards the fulfillment of the promise, definitely the promise of the Messiah. And then we arrive at the first advent. The appearing of Jesus. So this period, setting the stage for Christ's coming, that's what we're going to connect with today. Just trying to understand the people as they're waiting and Christ comes. And then for us living in this waiting period before the second coming of Christ. And what is it to wait? So during this Advent season, just what we've been looking at, Matthew's record and, and Matthew's gospel, of the events leading to that first uh, appearing of the Messiah, and the birth of Christ. So God's sovereign and perfect plan um, is revealed to his people for over 2,000 years. We get to read and look at what God did by sending his son. We can read about the various responses to his birth, to the birth of Jesus. We can measure our response even now and throughout contemporary culture but the question i want to address today is why did jesus appear when he did and how are we to live in the aftermath of the greatest gift the best news the most amazing event in the history of the world our 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 timeline is divided by, uh, on this amazing event jesus birth so if you would open with me back to galatians 4 We could go many different places, but Galatians 4 speaks to it. So Galatians 4, and we're just going to focus on verses 4 through 7. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can read along. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me once again? God, this is your word, your very words. Some uh, of us may have heard your word, heard these words even many times, but just allow your spirit to help us, help us consider things from your truth this morning like never before. Just teach us timeless truth. Lord, may it pierce our souls, may it stir our hearts. Your word can do that, and we trust that you will do that this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. How now shall we live in light of the first appearing of Christ? with the hope of his certain return, his, his certain second advent, second appearing, the return of Christ. That's what we're waiting on. So would you consider that we must live, we must live to love God and people in the world he created, knowing that Jesus will appear again. That's our call. And to address this question, to address why would we wait with hope, why would we wait with eager expectation, why would we wait in loving God and loving people, like why did all this happen, I think maybe even a more fundamental question is why did Jesus come and die? Why did he have to die? So this could be a question, as, as you sit, as we're here this morning, that could be burning in your heart to think about this beautiful picture of the baby Jesus being born, even with all the uh, tumultuous, tumultuous culture that was going around. Yet he came, but then we know and we can know the full story of his life, of the first incarnation, is that he came to die. Why? Why did he have to die? So as we look at this passage in this letter of Paul to the Christians in Galatians, probably a large region, uh, com- composed of many towns that Paul and Barnabas had probably spent their first missionary journeys reaching and teaching and, and visiting. So he's writing back to these people. Supposedly, scholars say he's writing, writing this letter around 50 AD, so within you know many people that were alive during the time of Christ were still alive when this correspondence is going on. So he's why is he writing this letter? What is this portion of the letter a part of Paul for the Christians in Galatia. He's writing to help them. He's wanting them to defend themselves from false teachers. There was this group of false teachers that were coming in telling the Gentile believers, telling the non-Jewish people that actually secondary, um, actually uh, lowering the priority of faith alone in Christ for salvation is that they needed to become Jewish. That was a first priority. They need to adhere to all the ways of Jewish life that that was actually a higher priority than faith in Christ alone. They were threatening Paul's credibility as an apostle. That is the setting, that is the purpose of this letter. And his main point in the letter is to remind the church, to remind them of their justification, to remind them of the purpose of the law and what it means to be in the family of God. So it's an amazing teaching here that we see when we get to verse four here in chapter four, but when the fullness of time had come, so he says at just the perfect time, earlier in the letter, he had talked about until the date set by the father, the father sent the son. So even in that phrase alone, what does that teach us? What is that as the contemporary reader, not just the first century reader, but what does that teach us? That Jesus was and is God. He didn't say that at the fullness of time, God created his son. Jesus is not created. He sent his son. So Jesus being co-equal and co-eternal. Now, as we get into talking about who the heavenly father is and what he's done for us, remember Jesus, his son, co-equal and co-eternal with the father. Always existed. Pre-incarnate state in this eternal state. That's Jesus. But then he's born of a woman. Born of a woman, so he entered, he was incarnate at this time. The gift of him is he's going to be in the form of a man, the God-man. This is amazing, the amazing reality of who Jesus was. And then his identity as a Jew, that he was born under the law. His identity would be as a Jew, the people who lived according to God's law. This is Jesus. And Jesus talked about this same truth. He said, and John records in his gospel, I came from the father. That's what Jesus said. I came from the father. Genesis 3.15, the first mention we have of the one who's going to come to put to death the enemy. When uh, in the garden, uh, Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent in the garden, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between the offspring of the woman. So Jesus was going to be born of a woman. He's going to become in the form of a man. And then maybe the clearest picture, the most beautiful picture of who Jesus is when he was at the fullness of time had come and he's sent by the father, John 1.14. John 1.14, the word became flesh, the word co-eternal with the father, the word who through everything was created and he created everything. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus. This is the incarnation. So this fullness of time, what was the perfect date set by the Father? Why did he come during Roman rule? Why did he come at this point in history? Why is all of our historical timing based on this point in history at this time? The fullness of time. So when the world was exactly at this right moment. So this verse declares that God sent his son when the time had fully come. And there are many things occurring at this time that we can kind of speculate. We could say, well, this is why Jesus came at the time. There are some things going on that kind of made it make sense, if you will, maybe in, in some practical ways. First of all, the people were very desperate. We've talked about 400 years of silence. They're, they've been ruled and conquered over and over again. So God's people, the Jewish people, are so desperate, so desperate, they're wanting for their Messiah to come. Some of these other captured people, even in the, under the Roman Empire, they're restless, they're yearning for freedom from Rome. And the Jews like them. We have uh, recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the prophetess Anna and in Zechariah the father of John the Baptist and they speak to that they were awaiting the long awaited messiah this period of silence and they're just yearning and wanting the messiah to come so there was kind of the desperation that had maybe reached kind of its its climax at this point in history then we think about travel what's going to be the state for new believers after Christ well What Rome did, they had uh, united much of the world under its government, and there's a sense of a a world community. There's, There's relative peace, even though they ruled by the sword. There's the Pax Romana, and there's this intricate system of roads built. So the word of Christ could get spread a lot easier at this point in history that it wouldn't have any time before because of Roman occupation. The third thing, language. The Greek influence on the culture that came in after the Persians that it created this common language and the Roman Empire uh, throughout the Roman Empire. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus could be communicated easier than at any point in history to many different people. Then the fourth thing, again, maybe what's this fullness of time about the fourth thing many had abandoned. They'd become dissatisfied, disillusioned with idolatrous worship, different forms of pagan worship. Many of the cultures were leaving behind the worship of their ancestors. So there's this sense of kind of a spiritual void that's just waiting for maybe truth to come. So we can have, we see here some historical factors. We can speculate that why that particular point in history was a good time for Christ to come. But still the question, still the question, why did God send his son when the fullness of time had come? So we get that here as we Turn to the next verse, the next part of Paul's letter. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So regardless of the historical factors, God did it. And why did he do it? His mission, his plan was accomplished. It was accomplished to set us free. And only through paying a price, we are free from slavery to the law. In order for us to receive, we get to... recover, get back our place as sons, our place as his very children. This is why Jesus came. So every person at this time in history, every person now, both Jewish, non-Jewish, we deserve punishment. We deserve punishment. We stand in slavery to sin. We are trapped and dominated by our flesh, our nature that's opposed to God and his ways. The consequences of not being able to follow God's law. That's being under the law. That's what the purpose of the law was, to show us we're incapable of following it. We are in desperate need of redemption, adoption. We we are not in God's favor apart from what he's gonna do through Jesus. We're unable to keep God's perfect expression of his will, which is the Mosaic law, which is the law. We're unable to keep it. Psalm 143 Romans 3, make it make it abundantly clear, no one is living. No one that's living or has ever lived is right before God. All have disobeyed the law. So God's chosen people, the Jews, they could not obey the law. The Gentiles stand under God's curse in the same way because they, uh, without the law, have only their own fallible, sinful consciences to live by. So they're definitely uh, under the punishment and judgment of God. So think about in God's supreme plan. In his supreme plan, Christ's life, death, and resurrection would redeem all who have faith in him. All. redeem in Greek, it means to secure deliverance from an evil by paying a price. A price had to be paid. Peter, in his letter to the church, he writes about knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherit from your forefathers, He says that the precious blood of Christ does this. So just understand, our redemption, the penalty, blood had to be shed. Christ did have to come in the form of a man, and he had to come and die. Die, have his his blood shed. That's the only way our redemption can be secured. That's the only way the price could be paid. So we are brought back. We are bought back. We're delivered from the course of the law. We're adopted into the family of God. Christ's rescue of people from submission to sin and its consequences, it changes our status. It changes our status from a slave with no inheritance to an adopted son. So we referred to this when we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount in previous months when we talked about blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So just to uh, refresh or or remind why women are never referred to as daughters of God in the Bible. So the reason is in the ancient world, only the sons received the inheritance. So just biblical authors, they're trying to avoid confusion by saying that if they said sons and daughters, that maybe the original readers would only think, well, only the sons gained the inheritance. That's how it works. But we know that by exclusively referring to all the children of God, men and women alike in faith, Uh, as, As sons of God, they're saying something. The biblical authors are saying something profound. Men and women, equal recipients of inheritance to the Father. So the expression adoption as sons, it is for all. Men and women alike who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when we use that language, just understand what's translated here is for uh, the benefit of of no confusion in the ancient world and for us now. So this expression, adoption of sons, it's never used in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's never uh, used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Adoption of sons is never used, but Israel is referred to often. The people of Israel, they're referred to in the Old Testament often as God's son. So Paul is pointing out, Paul's pointing out that through faith in Christ, redemption and adoption occurs for both Jew and Gentile. So this status that we have as adopted children of God through faith, we get that continuity with Israel as God's chosen people. This is an amazing reason why he came and died to redeem us. And then verse 6, because you are sons. As rightful heirs to inherit God's blessings, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this timeless truth that is the reality of what we have, the gift of Jesus. So as rightful heirs to inherit God's blessings, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he reveals to us that God is our Abba, our our, our Papa, our father. In Aramaic, that's the word for father. So just as God sent his son, just as God sent his son to deliver us from slavery to sin, sin, he sent his spirit, sent his spirit to help us live in constant union with him. So what does this, this spirit-generated union do for us? What is this spirit help for us as the children of God? Mark 14, 36 Mark 14.36 records Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with that event. And listen to Jesus, his prayer to the Father. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So understand the union that are Tri- our, our Trinitarian God has had, the union, the relationship for all eternity between the Father and the Son, That's our it, that spiritual adoption gives us that same close, loving, familiar relationship with God that Christ has had with God the Father for all eternity. The eternal Sonship of Christ closely resembles our relationship with our Abba, our Heavenly Father. This is an amazing reality, what we inherit. What, did, what does redemption look like? What does adoption look like? That we get to have this same relationship that Christ has with the heavenly Father. Romans eight fifteen. for you to not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit does in the life of all who place their faith and trust, in the gift of Christ. So you're no longer a slave, verse seven, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So since the spirit reveals, since the spirit reveals our redemption back into an intimate relationship with our father so that we know him, we call upon him, we're no longer captive to sin, we've inherited the blessing of freedom that will be fully realized at the second advent. What are we waiting Are We experience a measure of his grace and his power, regeneration, yes, now, but it will be fully realized by this second advent. When he comes again, what is this inheritance? What is our inheritance that will be fully realized when he comes to judge the living and the dead? Earlier in the letter, uh, God tells us that promises made long ago, they are fulfilled by faith. Earlier in Galatians, Galatians 3 verse 8 says this, and saying you shall all, all uh, in you shall all the nations be blessed his promise to abraham so then those who are faith are blessed along with abraham the man of faith the inheritance is the promise of the blessing of being justified of being made right declared innocent by faith and uh, that's our salvation so by faith we inherit the blessings of the new creation which God has directed his saving purposes for. We are in God's family. This is the inheritance that we have. Experiencing it presently, yes, and fully realized on the last day when he comes again. So I know some of us, maybe even after our time together this morning or tomorrow, we're heading to be with family. So I know family experiences are different. Family histories and family dynamics are, are different all across the board, but maybe we could think, would you trade your family for any other family to gather with on Christmas? And I know none of us would want to gather with Jeff Bezos's family, even though that may mean we get something incredible, you know, some incredible gift. But what would it be? What would, what would it be about another family that would make you want to disown or disregard your own family gathering and pick another I know many would say, like, you know, no matter if it's the Bezos family or no matter all the money in the world, we wouldn't trade you know it together with, with our family, maybe our closest relatives, because it's about who your family is. So how, how or why would anyone pass up being in God's family? If we understand that, if we understand the offer that is made to anyone, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, it doesn't matter the offer is made, come into God's family as an adopted son and as an adopted daughter through faith in Jesus Christ. Who would pass that up? So first, absolutely, like the deliverance from an eternity in hell. That is a reason to want to be adopted into God's family, that you will be with him forever. The only alternative is an eternity in hell experiencing rightly his just judgment against sin and law-breaking. But what else? What else is the reason to not pass this offer up? Just not not believing. Not believing it's all true. Maybe there's there's just people that they just they just don't want to believe it's true. They can't even understand that our whole history hinges timing-wise on the birth of Christ. And they want to deny the validity of it. Deny the truth of it. Or maybe they pass it up. They pass up the offer of adoption, the offer of redemption, because they don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we have just seen in a short time together this morning that to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the best experience we can ever have because he is wonderful. The relationship with God the Father is the most wonderful experience we can have in this life and the life to come. The gift of God sending his son is so we can be in his family as adopted sons and daughters. Our status made right, declared innocent, heirs to all the riches of eternity with our triune God, it's only made possible because of the shed blood of Christ. This was and is God's perfect plan. We understand. We understand that God's ways are not our ways. There is some, uh, we have to give way to mystery in some part of his plan. So I mentioned earlier some of the reasons why God may have chosen this particular time in history to send his son, roads, language, etc. However, the foundation laid with the law helped us know the depth of Sinfulness. It helped the people. It was supposed to, the law was supposed to lead people to know the depth of their sinfulness. This is when God came. They could not keep the law. No one can. And then also think about the sacrificial system that was in place. The sacrificing, the blood being shed, animals being killed over and over and over to point to a covering of sin. Point to when it would ultimately be The sacrifice would be made for all sin for all time. And that was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That was going to, it was all pointing to the perfect sacrifice. The one who would come to be this pure spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, born as a man, perfectly obeying the law and given his life as a ransom for many on the cross. This is great news. This is the greatest news. This is the story of Christmas. Why he came. He came to die. It doesn't matter how it makes us feel. It doesn't matter if Jesus makes our lives easier or happier. What matters is if it's true. That's what matters. Repenting, believing, and living for Christ as we wait for his second coming is not good advice. It's the only legitimate response to good news. Now hear me as we wrap up. A prominent pastor gives this example of the difference between good advice and good news. A teacher tells their class at the beginning of the semester, do your homework, do the assigned readings, listen to lectures, study for the final exam, you'll do fine. That's good advice. That's good advice from the teacher. She comes to the final exam and she notices a young man that's not writing anything on his paper. Now she could go to him and say, hey, remember, you know, what you studied, um, focus, relax. Let's just write something down. Again, in that moment, that would be good advice from the teacher. But then what if the teacher said, hey, scoot over. Let me take the test for you. That's good news. That's not good advice. Christ takes our place. There is substitutionary atonement. And his righteousness is going to count for me. His righteousness, his perfection is going to count for me on the last day. And if if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's going to count for you on the last day. The New Testament, it tells the story of how hope came, not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. The 400 years of silence of the intertestamental period, they were broken by the greatest story ever told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's two things. There's two ways that I think we can grasp the incarnation and the purpose of why he came. One, live in humility. Live in humility. My attitude to God is humble. I don't boast of anything I've done that could be considered a good deed, church attendance, Bible knowledge, hospitality. One scholar puts it like this, I will recognize both my own unworthiness and the wonder of his grace. I live in humility. That's the first response we can have to really, I think, fully grasping the incarnation. We live in humility. And then the second one, walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. We will be committed to living our lives in gratitude to him for his love. He's adopted us into his family and his power will change us and influence us. Along with the good gifts of corporate worship, prayer, Bible reading, service. He uses these means of grace along with baptism, the Lord's Supper, which we're about to observe. He uses all these things to let us experience our adoption as his children. To allow us to experience even presently our redemption. So we can't neglect these things. We can't neglect walking in the spirit if we truly grasp why Jesus came in the first place, would you pray? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us as we go into maybe even further hustle and bustle of the season. As we go into family gatherings or travel or what, whatever is going to happen, Lord, would you, through the power of your spirit, remind us infuse into our gatherings, into our our, our hearts and into our conversations the reality of the gift of Jesus, the reality of the incarnation of Christ, why he came, when he came, and that he came to die so that we could be a part of your family forever. Would that give us joy and hope? like nothing else. Help us in that, to to walk in humility, to walk by your spirit. In Jesus' name.